Well, we are in Psalm 118. Scared you there for a minute, didn't I? Psalm 118. If you would, please follow as I read through it. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that His mercy endureth forever. Let them now who fear the Lord say, His mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with those who help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched like the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them. I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord who hath shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. You'll notice uh, that this is the last of the Hallels. Uh, It is the so-called Egyptian Hallel, this collection of psalms that were generally recited uh, during the Passover season. And there is some reason to believe that when we read that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn after the Last Supper and went out into the Mount of Olives, that this is most likely the hymn, the psalm, that they sang. Because this was what would be done at the Passover meal 
is to go through these psalms. They would be recited as you're eating your meal. And the very last one that you would recite or sing is this one here. It is, as you may have already picked up on, a messianic psalm. That is, much of what is said here, especially in the later part of this psalm, is applied to the Messiah himself. Maybe not every verse of it is messianic. Uh, There's some things that we might say doesn't fit. But on the whole, it certainly fits the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see. Notice the psalm begins with four verses that it's a call to worship. Uh, for those who are in several categories here, to praise the Lord. Notice it begins with, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. When we say that God is good, what do we mean? I guess you could reply, For His mercy endureth forever. Yeah? Uh, That's part of His goodness. But what what do you mean? How would God's goodness differ from His righteousness? Can a person be righteous and not good? Good question. I generally, I uh, technically, I, it would be difficult to be one without the other, but technically, to be righteous is to simply be in line with the law. It, it would be that you are uh, law-abiding. You're a law-abiding citizen. You're aligning with what is right. To be good is to go beyond what is right. Goodness is not just doing what you must do according to law, drive the speed limit, don't shoot anybody, but goodness is acts of mercy and love. And uh, here again, the ESV, this is one of the problems with some of the newer translations. The ESV uh, tries to be consistent in its translation of the word in Hebrew for mercy, and it uses the steadfast love. Of the Lord, and and it, it certainly is that it is feelings of compassion that are moving you to action, and so they use the translation steadfast love everywhere you see mercy in the King James. However, notice it is makes not a lot of sense to say the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, because if it didn't endure forever, it wouldn't be steadfast. You see the what's called a truism, a circular piece of logic, and so it just doesn't work very well in that context. Other places it works fine, but notice that it is the idea that God has this quality. We talked about this at length last time in looking at Psalm 117, this side of him that not only is he just and holy and righteous, he is also good, compassionate, merciful, loving. Okay, so notice that we have this call to worship of four different categories, all the way from Israel to Aaron uh, to the God-fearers in verse 4. Whoever is among you who feareth God. That was a category of people in Paul's day, Gentiles who were worshipers of the God of the Jews. They weren't necessarily Jewish proselytes, but they were called God-fearing men. Cornelius the centurion of Caesarea was described by that term. He was a God-fearing man. He wasn't a Jew, he wasn't a proselyte, he was a Gentile, but he feared God. He worshipped their God, you see. And so notice the universality of the call to worship. Everybody everywhere that worships God say that his mercy endures forever. Then in verses 5 through 18, we have 
what we might call the psalmist experience, because what we've got related is a little story here of what is going on in the psalmist's life. And notice it starts, as so many of them do, uh, with the psalmist being in trouble. In verse 5, it says that he calls upon the Lord in distress, and God answered him and set him in a large place. Now that seems rather strange. What in the world does that mean? Well, what do we mean when we say that we're in a jam? We're in a tight. We're between a rock and a hard place. We are in a straight. The Bible uses that terminology. What, what does that mean? Why, and why do we, why do we mean that? Why do, why do we use that expression? What's that? Hard to get out. Your choices are narrowed. If you're in a canyon, a narrow canyon, you can go forward or backwards, but you can't go in any other direction. I, I mentioned Sunday morning in the, going over the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, how the Roman army under Cestius lost their eagle. The, the 12th legion was defeated at Beth Horon as they were in a place, it was a pass, a mountain pass, where they had the entire legion strung out almost in single file. Normally, when the Romans fight, they didn't fight individually. They fought in these squares. They would lock their shields together. That was their great tactic. Uh, they learned that from the Greeks, by the way, from Alexander. And but So what you found them in was a situation, a circumstance, where they couldn't do that. This was on the side of a mountain, and they're strung out in single file, and it made them easy pickings for the Jews to defeat them. And so that's the idea. I can go this way, I can go this way, but I can't go up or down. I'm, I'm constrained. And so to be set in a large place is the very opposite of being between a rock and a hard place. It's being at liberty. It's being set free. And so that's why the language is used that way. His difficulty is further explained by being encompassed. Of course, that word means to be surrounded. It's not usually a good thing to be surrounded. I mean, you know... Again, our choices are narrowed. We're constricted. We, our movement, we can't get out of this encirclement. And notice he says that he is encircled, and this is why some of this sounds messianic, is because he is encircled by all nations. Um, in verse 10. I'm, I'm skipping over a few verses where he's saying it because it's better to put confidence in God than man. i got to skip over some stuff when I don't get through because there's a bunch of good stuff right at the end. I'm going to get to the goody. You know, a lot of times we eat the goody first. That's the way I do it anyway. Eat the icing, then eat the cake. But we're going to try to eat the cake first, then get to the icing. So we've got to move along. But, of course, the psalmist is expressing these ideas in various ways that it's better to trust in God than to put your confidence in man, even great men, even princes, even mighty and powerful men. Why? Because they will let you down. They are not dependable. They are mutable. They have feet of clay. So in other words, the only safe refuge is for us to trust in God. And then in verse 10, that all nations are encircling me. But notice, in the name of the Lord, I destroy them. They compass me. They're surrounding me. And then verse 12, I like this. They compass me like bees. A swarm of bees. They are swarming all around me. But notice the second half. They are quenched like the fire of thorns. Thorns, if you ever burn some, what happens when they get in the fire? 
They just go like, as we say, like a house of fire. I guess we ought to be saying like thorns of fire. They burn very, very quickly, but then they're just as quickly extinguished. And so the psalmist is explaining his difficulty again in this terminology. It's like I've been encompassed by a swarm of bees. That would not be very pleasant, I don't think. Uh, but notice they, they come and like fire, like thorns, they sting, but they are very quickly extinguished. Notice verse 13, they are trying to butt him, trying to knock him down. They are thrusting. This is what a, a, an ox or a ram might do who uh, runs into you. What's happening, David? It's my magnetic personality acting up, I guess. Um, they're trying to knock me down. And the idea is here to get knocked down in battle, most of the time you never get up. Once you get knocked down, they run you through. It's over. Uh, Paul makes allusion to that in Ephesians 6. When we're talking about the armor of God, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore. Don't fall. Don't fall on your face. That's not where you want to be. And so notice the enemy is trying to knock me down. But verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. One fellow said, he's my strength in the middle of the battle. He's my song when the battle is over. I am ascribing to him my deliverance. He is become, he says here, my salvation. And so the voice of rejoicing in the tabernacle of the Lord. And notice three times here, the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The commentators say, well, that may be the Trinity. I don't know, but... Almost every time they see three sets of something, they say that's the Trinity. Very common to find commentators taking that route. It may be, but just notice that this is being emphasized. This psalm sort of has the feel of a choral, a liturgical psalm. Uh, you know what I mean by liturgy? We don't have much liturgy here. A bunch of unlearned rednecks we can barely you know, get through like it is, let alone having to say something at the right time, you know, jump up and say something, sit down, this group sets up. Uh, antiphonal, where you've got different groups saying things and singing things back and forth. Used to, in the old days, choirs would be divided and they would sing uh, something to one side and then the other side answers back. This psalm has that feel to it. You may notice these repetitions that you keep seeing over and over again where something is repeated three or four times. And it's like we started out with those four groups, and it's like each group is, is repeating these things and reciting them. I don't know that's the case, but it certainly has that, that feel to it. But now when we get down to verse 18, uh, the question says, The Lord has chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. And most of the commentators point out that, that well, this pretty much rules out Christ uh, since, after all, he did die. Um, but I think there's probably a couple of ways of looking at this. And because the rest of the psalm is so strongly messianic, is that looking at this verse and saying, well, is, this a, is there a way this could fit Christ? Well, clearly he died, but he didn't remain dead. It may be that he is saying, I cannot ultimately die. I cannot finally die. Uh, it was like Lazarus, whom he says he's, he's sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, he'll be all right. Oh, but he's sleeping the sleep of death, but I go to awaken him. In other words, this, 
You remember what Jesus said in the beginning of that chapter? This sickness is not unto death. He said, wait a minute, he's dead. David's doing that, by the way. It's all David's fault. All right? Okay, Lazarus, this sickness is not unto death, but he's dead. The ultimate outcome is not death. Or perhaps another possibility, and I mentioned this Sunday in the message, is that because of Christ's righteous life, he earned life under the law of Moses so that the law could not kill him. He was... Invincible. He was immortal. And time and time again, I, I'm thinking of a couple of places in John's Gospel where they reached down to grab stones to stone him. Uh, one in John 8 where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. It's interesting, just earlier than there, he said, uh, You're of your father, the devil. You, you know, your father was a murderer from the beginning, and you folks are trying to kill me. And they say, You're crazy. You've got a demon. Nobody's trying to kill you. And before the chapter's over, they're picking up stones to stone him. Yeah, they're going to kill. They would, they would love to. Uh, we see it again in John 10. As he's saying, I'm the good shepherd, they pick up stones to stone him. And he just walks right through them. We, we saw it in Nazareth when he went to the synagogue. They took him up on the cliff and meant to throw him off. And he just walked through them. They had no right to him. They had no right to kill him. And yet he died. But he died not because... There was a cause of death found in him. Even Pilate says, I find no cause of death. But he died because he laid down his life. And, and I, I find some satisfaction in that interpretation is that this is the Messiah presenting himself, the invincible, immortal Messiah. And I'm not talking about as God. Obviously, as God, he was always immortal, couldn't die but as the God-man, as the Messiah in his messianic office, he is coming to present himself to his people as the invincible, the immortal one, who, however, is going to lay down his life in death. You say, why do you think that? Well, notice verse 19. It is here a demand, almost, for admission into the house of God. To open to me. Notice he said, not say, please open. Uh, Pardon me, but would you open the door? But he demands that you open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go in and praise the Lord. The gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. In other words, I have the right to enter into the presence of God. And it's almost a unique claim that I alone have the right to appear before God because I alone am righteous. It is the Messiah coming and presenting himself as the righteous servant of Jehovah. And so he is demanding that the doors be open and he be granted admittance. Let me ask you, do you remember a time in Jesus' life when he comes and presents himself as the Messiah publicly? I mean, there's a lot of things he did and he would do a miracle and he said, now don't tell everybody. Don't tell him, don't tell him I'm the Christ. But there was one episode where he very blatantly, in your face, presents himself as the Messiah. Al? Palm Sunday. What we call the triumphant entry. When he comes over the Mount of Olives, sits on the foal of an ass, and rides into town. 
and the crowds lining the streets waving the palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Guess where that's coming from? Right here. And so notice that what's happening is God's servant, God's king, is presenting himself. He is coming. Uh, By the way, do you know what he did after he entered the city? He went into the temple. Do you know what he did? Cleaned house. Overthrew the tables. Drove out the money changer. In other words, I've come to take over. This is God's righteous servant claiming his rights as Messiah. And he is entering into the house of God, into the temple itself. And notice in verse 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Very important verses. I tell the story of one of our trips to Mexico when I guess it was the first trip. We we stayed with Mary Lee Hall her uh, in Pine Bluff uh, last night. Her husband Richard died just a few months ago, and I was helped preach his funeral. But he went with us, and she went with us. Our first work group that went to Mexico, and we were up building what was the beginnings of the girls' dorm. And uh, there was a boy there named Chico who was from Guatemala. They called him a wetback. Anyway, uh, Chico. Uh, was the son of a bricklayer, so he knew how to lay bricks. And we were half of us were hauling bricks up to the roof where they were starting on these walls of the girls' dorm. And uh, that old cheap Mexican brick, some of it would be broken, some of it would be misshaped, wouldn't, the sides wouldn't be parallel. I mean, strange-looking stuff. And Ochico would pick up one of those bricks. We'd, we'd haul a bunch of them up, up there for him. Settle down. That, that's Chris's pacemaker interfering here. <laughs> a little pick up a little static. Uh, Chico would look these bricks over, and uh, if he'd look at them, turn it this way and this way, and if it wasn't, if it didn't meet his approval, he'd just throw it over his shoulder. And of course, we're up there on the roof, and it fall, it won't be to anybody happen to be walking uh, along the sidewalk underneath. Before the week was over, there was a whole pile down there of the rejects, we call them the bone pile, where uh, Chico had just discarded these misshapen, these bricks. And that is precisely what is being described here. The builder is looking over a stone and saying, this stone is not fit, it, it is not suitable for the building, and he is throwing it away. And yet notice, God has made it the head of the corner. They reject the stone. God, in reply, makes that stone the cornerstone, the most important stone of a structure in their day. Everything was tied to, everything leaned on the cornerstone. Notice verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, when we say something's, Marvelous. Uh, what do we mean? Huh? Fabulous. fabulous. That's generally what we mean. It's just really good. It's beyond good. It's marvelous. But think about the word. It's sort of like the word wonderful, which means full of wonder. When you think of marvelous, what does the word really mean? It's miraculous. It's, mar- it's a marvel. It is something that is so unusual that you can't 
you just can't believe it. And so notice that what's going on here is that the builders are rejecting the stone which has presented itself to them as not being fit to be in their building. They've tossed it out, and God has taken the discarded, refused stone and made it the head of the corner of another building. Now, we got to ask ourselves, well, we got some help here, by the way. we got some New Testament help. Because Jesus brings this verse up in the New Testament. Um, let's, let's go there and take a look at it. In uh, Matthew 21, mm-hmm. it's also in Luke's version. He has told the story of a vineyard and... Uh, if you compare the details of the vineyard here in Matthew 21 with the details of a vineyard Isaiah describes in chapter 5 of Isaiah, you'll see they're identical. Clearly, he means this is the nation of Israel described by this vineyard. And there are men who have rented it out. And as we used to say back on the farm, they rented it out on the shares. That is, at the end of the season, they'll owe the landowner a certain percentage of the crop that they've reaped, in this case, grapes. Uh, we farm cotton on the quarters and wheat and oats on the thirds, we call it. In other words, cotton, the uh, landowner gets a quarter of the gross profits. When you have wheat, he gets a third of the gross profits. But there's a set amount that you don't, you don't pay rent, or at least... Up north, up in Yankee land, they rent farmland. Down south, where I'm from, they still farm on the shares. How much you owe is how much you get at the end of the year. It just depends on how good a crop you got. If you don't make anything there, sometimes I'm afraid we're going to have to cough up money. Instead of making money, we're going to have to help the guy pay his way out of debt, losing so much money. Okay, you get the principle? That's what's going on here. There are these who have leased a vineyard. They have the custodial care of the vineyard. They're supposed to pay rent, but they're refusing to do it. And the landowner sends his servants, and they mock them and persecute them. And finally, the landowner sends his son, and they say, Ah, here comes the son. He's the heir. Let's kill him and take the vineyard for ourselves. It'll be ours. In other words, he's the the one who's going to inherit this thing. Let's kill him, and we we can treat it like our vineyard. Now, doesn't take a genius to figure out what's going on here, is it? The servants or the prophets God has been sending, and the Son obviously represents God's Son. So the question is, who are the builders? Back to this, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but who are, who are the ones in custodial care of the vineyard? Well, it's the priest, and it's the Levi, it's the rabbi, it's the power structure of the nation of Israel. These are they who have custodial care over the vineyard. Now, verse 40, let's break in there. Matthew 21, verse 40. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, in other words, when the landowner shows up, what will he do unto those husbandmen, those farmers? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let his vineyard unto other husbandmen who shall render him the fruits in their season. In other words, he's going to take the key, uh, like, Daddy took the keys of what, what was that song? Till Daddy takes the T-bird away. Yeah, there we go. In other words, the keys represent the authority, the right to use it. 
And because of the fact they've refused him, uh, he is going to come and miserably destroy them, number one. And then secondly, he's going to take what was their office and give it to somebody else. And of course, this is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and it's also prophesying the fact that we've got, we got a new building. That Jesus is building is not the old building. It's not the temple. It's going to be a new structure with new pow- a new power authority. I, I don't have near enough time to go into it. But it, it's very clear that what Paul, what Jesus is bestowing upon his apostles is the authority that once belonged to somebody else. The power of binding and loosing, that's rabbinical talk. The power of, of uh, um, thinking of John's uh, remitting and retaining sin, that's priestly talk. That the authority that used to be in those men now is being transferred to the apostles. They're the ones who's going to tell us our duty. They're the ones going to tell us how we can get rid of our sin. And in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you see them doing exactly that. What duties am I to be bound to? The apostles tell us. How is it that I can be free from my sin? They can't just say, poof, 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 you're free from your sin, but they can tell me what I need to do to be free from my sin. They went and preached remission of sins by faith in the name of Jesus. So they're telling you how you can get your sins remitted. But notice what's happening is that is being transferred. Ah, I, I can stay here all night. I, oh, one quick story. Our Israeli guide, Leslie, when we were up at Caesarea Philippi, and uh, there were standing where Peter made his confession, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus then says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here we are standing right in front of the cave of Pan where in Jesus' day an underground stream came out of that cave. Since then, the roof of the cave has fallen in. The stream now comes out about 100 feet further down. That's the headwaters of the Jordan River. starts right there at that spring. But it used to come out of that cave, right out of the mouth of that cave, and they call that the gates of hell. We're standing at that spot where Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. I'll build my church. Notice we got a new building here. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you're standing right there at the gates of hell. And then he goes on and says, Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loose. In other words, I'm going to give you this authority. Now, Leslie, our Israeli guide, said, he said, I've always had a question. He and I were jabbering back and forth about some stuff and he said, I, 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 this idea of Kaffee. And I said, Kaffee? He said, yeah, Kaffee. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he says, well, it's, it's the nickname. That Kaffee wasn't a proper name uh, like Joe or Bill. Kaffee was more like Rocky. The word Kaffee was the, a nickname. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a, proper name. We would not have named our child that. It's like a description. And I said, well, what do you mean, Caffey? He said, it's short for Caiaphas. And I'm sitting there, oh, Caffey. And I said, what does Caffey mean? 
It means a rock. I never knew that. Kaffee, a rock. In other words, the guy who was the chief priest, the high priest in Jesus' day, the chief guy was a rock. That's what his name meant, Rocky. And now Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, notice Peter wasn't his real name. That's not what he named. His parents didn't name him that. His name was Simon. But I'm going to... Jesus gave him a nickname. Peter. Guess what Peter means? Rocky. Do you see the idea of transferring the power? I said, thank you, Leslie. You just gave me another argument for this whole theme that Jesus is transferring the power structure of Israel of the kingdom of God to his disciples. Okay, I get excited over stuff. Nobody else does. I admit it. But anyway, I just thought that was fascinating to learn that. I never knew that. I came home, did some research. Sure enough, Caiaphas was not a proper name at all. It was a description. It was a descriptive term, a nickname. All right? Uh, So, notice here we have... Did I ever get far enough? He's going to destroy them. He's going to take, away, take it away from them, give it to somebody else. In verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes our text. The idea is that you're going to reject him and God's going to choose him. What you rejected, God will choose. What you said is not fit to be in our building. God's going to take that same stone that you rejected and make it the chief stone in His building. You see the, the sense of it? And then notice, here's the transfer in verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits of it. In other words, what you've had is going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else. Well, are we sure that he's talking about the Jews? Well, notice Acts 4. Let's hear from old Rocky himself. Acts 4, they've just, uh, remember the lame man at the temple is healed um, by Peter and John. And they all look at them like they're miracle workers and Peter's saying, don't look at us. Uh, Acts 4, verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. In other words, don't look at us as if we had the power to do this. This was done through the name of Christ. Look at the next verse. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Notice that Peter is identifying for us both who the builders are. Who's he preaching to? Look down in verse 6. Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together. In other words, this is the power structure of Israel. They're the builders. Who's the stone? Jesus of Nazareth. And so he goes on to say, what does this mean? Verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among heaven, under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In other words, this is a new building. This is the, the only way of salvation. Okay, um, man, we've got more to do. Let's go a little further. Back to Psalm 118. He's demanding entrance, going in, presenting himself. He is the stone which the builders are going to reject. 
And then verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice, or we will rejoice and be glad in it. How many have you ever heard that verse before? We used to sing it all the time back in the old days. Charlie, our human karaoke machine, we could still do that one. I don't think, however, I mean, come on, every day is a day the Lord has made. What does this mean? I believe we're talking about a new day. A new day is dawning, a messianic day, the day of Messiah. It is the day. It's tying back to verse 22 and 23, the day when God takes the rejected stone and makes this stone the head of the corner. And so we come to verse 25, save now, I beseech thee. I realize you're not reading this in Hebrews, but if you were, save now, I beseech thee is a phrase of Hebrew words, you would say, Yasha Anna. And they would run them together. Yashana. We anglicize it into the word Hosanna. It's where the word Hosanna comes from. What were they shouting as Jesus is riding the donkey into the temple? Hosanna. Save us now. It was a uh, they, they did this in the Feast of Tabernacles. They would shout Hosanna and wave palm branches. And notice the same thing is going on in the triumphant entry. They are shouting Hosanna, waving these palm branches, and they are reciting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wish we had time to go back to John 5. He says, you know, I've come in my Father's name and you don't want me. If another comes in his own, own name, you'll receive him. How true, how true. But here is the one who indeed is the fulfillment of this. The one who is coming to Jerusalem in the name of his Father, in the name of the Lord. And you recall, and again, we just don't have time to trace it all, but a couple of things were going on when he's in the temple. The children are shouting, Hosanna, blessed he's he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the priests are saying, do you hear what they're saying? Shut them up. And Jesus says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained wisdom. Quotes out of Psalm 9. Here are the babes shouting wisdom, and you're supposed to be the wise guys, and you're trying to shut them up. When he's entering into Jerusalem, and his disciples are waving the palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, shut them up. And you remember what Jesus said? If I shut them up, the rocks would cry out. Now, what does that mean? It means that God has ordained that this be shouted, and if I shut them up, the rocks will shout it. Somebody's going to shout, because God has ordained it. When did he ordain it? What is his word that established it? It's this text. That this is what's going to happen when Messiah comes to his temple. When he presents himself as their Messiah. This is what will be shouted. This will be what the people wave the palm branches over. And so finally, and this is the confusing part. Verse 27, God is the Lord who has shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. The altar in front of the temple was a horned altar. In fact, we saw some examples of pagan altars that were horned altars. That is, they have like an, an, a protrusion, an edif- uh, some sort of knob or something like that on the four corners. And notice in this case, the idea was that you would then tie the sacrifice. You would bind him and tie him. 
as you're offering him in sacrifice. And what strikes me here is that what Christ is doing is first presenting himself as the Messiah, as the righteous servant of Jehovah, the one who has the right to the enter into the temple, but then he is offering himself voluntarily as the sacrifice. There is a text in John, and John's gospel is so important because it fills holes in the other accounts of what happened in Christ's trial, his arrest, and so forth. And remember that he is down in Gethsemane, and Judas and the men come down the hill. And and if you've ever stood there and seen the logistics, you would see how easy it would have been for Jesus to have gotten away. I mean, there's no street lights. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. And uh, Jesus had gone into the garden. You remember he took them in, then he took Peter, James, and John, went further in, and then he left them and even went further in. So he is way back in the garden. All it would have taken him to sort of slip out the back. See that? Those walk, watch them come down the side of the Kidron Valley with their torches and lanterns. You can see them, they can't see you, and just slip out the back. You know where Jesus met them? In the front of the garden. And he went out front and said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm he. And they all fell down. <laughs> when they got back up, they said, who, who, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. They all fell. I'm he. They all fell down again. He had to help them arrest him. The scriptures say, of course, that's when Peter got to swinging with the sword and cut the servant of Malchus' ear off and so forth. Um Oh, by the way, which is interesting, because that disqualifies you from being a priest. You have your ear cut off. Uh, Herod at one point was having to leave Jerusalem, had this other guy, Hecranus, who was his rival. He was supposed to be the, this rival priest, and he cut off his ears. Because not only does the sacrifice have to be perfect, the person offering the sacrifice has to be perfect. can't have a man with one leg be a priest. Or two heads. It has to be Perfect, just like the sacrifice. So cut their ear off, that disqualifies them. I never, I never thought about that. But anyway, a little, little detail there. But notice that the whole account is showing that no man takes his life from him. That he is offering himself. He's voluntary. And the scripture says they took him and they bound him. And that is a fascinating thought, especially in reference here. Take the sacrifice and bind it to the altar. Because the law enforcement officers will tell you that the first thing you're going to do to subdue somebody is put those handcuffs on them. You know, we'll talk it over after we get you in the cuffs. After we subdue you. Because you got the handcuffs on you. You may be screaming and kicking and hollering and running and everything, but you're not going far. The point is, once they bind you, they got you. And we sometimes make a distinction between the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is that which he actively pursued himself in the obeying obeying of the law. But we also talk about the passive obedience of Christ, that which he allowed to happen to him. And we, if you want to get technical, the moment they bound him, you have passed the boundary from the active obedience to the passive obedience. He has been delivered into the hands of, of wicked men, 
and he helped them do it. You see the voluntary nature of his sacrifice. So I tend to look at this as the whole end of this chapter is being messianic and pointing to that time when Christ comes and presents himself as the righteous servant of Yahweh, the the Messiah, the one who has the right to the kingdom. But he's rejected, and God makes him the head of the corner. And he who couldn't die, died by laying down his life, surrendering his life in sacrifice. So we end, of course, as we began, with this ascription of praise to God and giving thanks to the Lord because he's good and for his mercy endures forever. The Old Testament people that sang this had no clue how good God was. I'm sure they had no clue how this would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming to present himself, being rejected, and then yielding himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Not a clue how good God is. We were talking this morning, prayer time over in Pine Bluff, a bunch of pastors, uh, as we were praying together, that one of our great difficulties in simply trusting God, we were talking about, we got over legalism, I wonder how that happened, uh, but the idea that even in our praying, we become legalists. You ever heard a legalist pray? There's legalistic prayers, the Pharisee praying in the temple, I think I do this, I do this, I do this, giving God all these reasons why He ought to answer Him. Pure legalism, quid pro quo. What we ought to be praying is like the fellow who had the guest come in the middle of the night and he doesn't have anything to feed him, goes next door and bangs on the door until he gets that guy half out of bed. There's absolutely no reason in the world why that guy should do it for him, but he does. And Jesus is telling that story to teach us how to pray with that same kind of what he calls importunity, shamelessness, shamelessness. You say, but I just couldn't do that. I'd I'd hold my head in shame before I'd go next door and bang on the door of my neighbor when it's my company. I'm the one that's unprepared. I'm the one don't have anything to feed them. It's not their problem. It's my problem. But notice that Jesus is teaching us to be absolutely shameless in our prayer life. Not afraid to ask for anything. You say, but I just couldn't do it without a reason. You've got to ask without a reason. That's how we are taught to pray. And it is so difficult for us to do it because we just can't believe God is as good as He really is. We feel like we've got to have a contract to hold Him to it. We've got to have something dangling out there or He's not going to hear our prayer. I mean, after all, there's no good reason why He ought to do this. But that's exactly how he does things in the kingdom of heaven, for no good reason. So that's not what disqualifies you. That's what qualifies you. All right, we've got to stop. Have mercy on our teachers in the other classes. Uh, we can go all night here. But uh, you can see a very pregnant psalm in meaning and quoted elsewhere in the New Testament showing us its importance and especially this notion of him being the stone, that just that theme, we could trace it through the New Testament of Jesus as the stone that is made the cornerstone of this new thing that Jesus calls his church, his assembly, his congregation.